Hey, everybody. Welcome to Red Pill Your Healthcast. My name is Dr. Charlie Fagenholtz, and I am here with Lauren Johnson, nurse practitioner. And we were talking about what we wanted to do this week on the podcast, and we thought that we would throw three more vaccines at you guys because you all love to talk about vaccines. We all know that's why half of you are here anyways, because we can't say all this on Instagram. And so today or tonight, we're going to talk about vitamin K, followed by Hib, followed by the COVID vaccine that everyone's so obsessed with and all the boosters and all that stuff that, you know, they just love to promote all over TV. They need to make their money, folks. And so let's start off with vitamin K. Now, we're going to, I'm going to talk about my experience with it, with our little ones, why we chose what to do what we did, but we're just going to talk about in general, you know, vitamin K is for, they tell you that you need it because your child could have a rare bleeding disorder. Now it is extremely rare, you know, numbers that I have looked up have been, uh, one in a hundred thousand. Um, and I even think that it needs to be taken further into account with what the mom's pregnancy was like. Did she take meds? Did she take antibiotics? You know, you have to look at the full picture. Now, um, that is the main reason for vitamin K. That is solely the only reason. And what I'm going to start off by saying is that vitamin K controls cell division and rapid cell division. And we obviously don't want rapid cell division because rapid cell division equals cancer. Now, the injection of vitamin K contains 20,000 times the recommended value for newborn levels. Think about that. And we're going to talk about some other ways. If you are, you know, one of those people that, uh, tends to be a little more on the fearful side because it grabs on your heartstrings, we totally get it. Um, so there's some other options for vitamin K and Lauren, what else should we tell the people about vitamin K before we jump into some other options? So I think it's really important to know what you had mentioned about medications, the increased risk does come for the bleeding with moms who have, were taking anti-seizure medicines, antibiotics, or anticoagulants. I think we have to state here that how many moms are put through a C-section, how many moms are group B strep positive, which we need to, that could be another episode, but basically, um, you mentioned a book that you have recommended. Yeah, uh, Sarah, Sarah Wickham, W I C K H A M has a really good book on group B strep and vitamin K. She okay. has a two phenomenal books. Definitely. Uh, we'll link those in the show notes. And I mentioned group B strep and a good protocol in my ebook, because it is something that if you, would, if you, if you find it, you can attack it early yeah. on and it's all about susceptibility and they need to be retesting. Um, a lot of OB offices will not retest. And I, that's where I would say, I need a new provider then because, or, or make sure of that before, like when early on in the pregnancy, because you want to make sure they can read, they can test you at 36 weeks or whatever, but have them retest you if you test positive, because most likely it will go away by the time you hit 40 weeks. So that is something to think about. So antibiotics, anticoagulants, and anti-seizure meds increase the risk of, of the bleeding in, in, the, in the baby. And so that is something that they now recommend this vitamin K injection that is massively increased dose of vitamin K within, they, they recommend it within six hours of birth. I six want to hours. first 
comment that how traumatic is that the baby is just getting associated with life. And I'm saying this, if you, if you're new here, please know that like I, I gave vitamin K to both my babies. I did not know then what I know now, if I have another one, I, I won't. Um, and so that is something that it's, there's no judgment or, uh, this isn't any guilting, like, like both of babies had it. So I'm not the one to be judging or shaming here. I am saying that it is traumatic. And if you think about it, that can really affect bonding and their transition and other association with pain. So let's also think about why, why is the baby's vitamin K low? Is it low on purpose? I think that we get so caught up in, oh, they must be deficient. Well, no, I don't think babies are born deficient on purpose. There's a reason why vitamin K levels go up. They go up at eight days. Did you know that? They go up at eight, at the eight days of life. And that's why the Jewish, um, the Jewish bris, when they circumcise the baby, it is at eight days of life. And Mm -hmm. that has been vitamin K levels increase. And I just think it's fascinating that we think that we have like the baby was somehow, there was a mistake made and it wasn't a mistake made. Um, and that, and the reason it also goes up later is it's produced by the gut microbiome, the yeah. vitamin K is. It is. And I want to just highlight what you just said on how we're taught to look at, at the human body as it makes mistakes. And we all know that the human body doesn't make mistakes. It doesn't, we are programmed to thrive. We were made to thrive. Yeah. Yep. And if we are not, there's a reason why we're not, it's not just cause, oh, you're just born that way. There's always a reason for it because again, we are the cream of the crop. Our ancestors have gone through famines and all these different infections and things like that. We are here because genetically we are cream of the crop. Our genome takes about a million years to change, um, but all of our ancestors survived. And so never think that we are born uh, with mistakes. The body does not make mistakes humans make mistakes, but our bodies do not. So, and another reason why you want low vitamin K levels is because of the things that are being passed between mom and baby in the cord. Um, let's highlight that for us. That's a really good point. Yeah. So when there is this immediate cord clamping, first of all, you don't get the transfer of iron like you, like you should. Um, but you also don't get the transfer of stem cells like you should. Mm. And those stem cells really work to repair organs. They, they work to help the body adjust to this new, um, world. And you don't get that if you're clamping them, but you need the blood to be thin in the cord in order for it not to clot. And so I think that there's a reason for that. They didn't find out about the stem cells being transferred until after the vitamin K injection was on the CDC schedule. And so I think that's really important to highlight. They're not going to take something off the schedule. They're just mm-hmm. not. And so, you know, like they, they don't want to risk being sued or, or, you know, public opinion being weary of uh, not taking vaccines anymore, which they're seeing right now after the COVID vaccine. And mm-hmm. so which we will get to, we will get yes, to, we will get to that. Um, so you really have to consider what all is coming through that umbilical cord. Why is the vitamin K levels low on purpose? We want the blood to be thin because we don't want clotting to happen during that time. 
Um, and I will say one more thing, vitamin K shot has a black box warning. It is the only injection on the CDC schedule that has a black box warning. And that says something, the CDC saying it, you know, they can't hide it. Yep. Now let's talk about solutions. Yeah. You did, you've done your research now you've listened to us. You, you opened your mind, you went and did more research. You're like, maybe it's not right to do what's some other options now. I have two child, two children. I said two child. It's been a long day. <laughs> uh, two children, one who's three years old, one who's two months old. For our three-year-old, we were in California and we went with what our midwife said, which is we used, uh, it's called Bio-K emulsion drops. They're from Biotics Research. Yeah. And we did vitamin K drops um, orally. So we did a drop on 12 hours, a drop on the fourth day, and then a drop on the fourth week. Uh, now there's many different midwife programs I've seen recommended once a week for five weeks. It, it, it's kind of ranges, um, for our second child, I know everyone doesn't have the luxury of being able to muscle test, but I muscle tested her and she did not test for it. And when I talked to my midwife about it, when she was there, she said, well, I'm not surprised. And she's the one who, who brought to my attention the studies that show that there is a possibility of a correlation between leukemia and vitamin K because of that rapid cell division. And so um, that that's what we chose. We chose to do nothing with our second child. For our first one, we went with what our midwife said and did the vitamin K drops, the natural drops. I don't even mind if you just increase your vitamin K foods or the mom increases taking vitamin K and get it through the breast milk, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think there are studies that show oral vitamin K does equal an efficacy to um, inject into the injection yeah. um, for prevention of bleeding. So I think that that's important to mention. I also think it's important to mention that we haven't yet is that vitamin K, the actual injection is linked to jaundice. So why are yeah. we seeing so many babies with jaundice? I used to work yeah. in a pediatrics office. Like I, I've seen a lot of jaundice and I do wonder if there is, um, you know, if it's because of the vitamin K injections that we're giving, because we're even many who are suspicious of the rest of the schedule, they will still do the vitamin K because yep. of the risk of bleeding. Cause it sounds so scary. I would say that in my eight years of seeing patients, um, most people, not, not all, but most would say, no, I didn't do any vaccines except for the vitamin K. Yep. Yep. And the, the, the side effects of vitamin K listed on the insert, um, eczema, mm -hmm. gasping syndrome, that is gasping syndrome. Now they're making up syndromes to make it seem normal that you have this side effect from the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, jaundice is on there. Fatal uh, death is on there. Um, seizures, intracranial hemorrhage, so you can still have a hemorrhage mm -hmm. uh, and then hepatic and, uh, or liver failure. Um, that is because it's really hard to process all that stuff. And the, the baby's body is just not mature yet. Yeah, and remember, vitamin, K, maybe vitamin K is a fat soluble vitamin. Yeah. And so it has to go through the liver and gallbladder. The liver and gallbladder have to take extra care of those types of vitamins because that's how you digest fats. Yep. So, okay. Vitamin K. We want to move on to HIB? Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. So uh, HIB, you get four doses. You get, uh, what is it? Two months, four months, 12 months, and 15 months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's just read the side effects 
first. And this is off CDC. Okay, there's three different vaccines. There's the ACT-Hib, the Pedivax-Hib, and the Hyberix. So this is in order. Anaphylaxis, hives, facial swelling, convulsions, extensive limb swelling, peripheral edema, itchy skin, rash, early onset of Hib disease. Literally, that's in the side effect. Early onset of Hib disease. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is basically polio. Yeah. Uh, lymph adenomyopathy, febrile seizures, uh, extensive swelling, injection site induration, you have anaphylactic reactions, angioedema, convulsions, hypotonic episodes, which we see quite a bit, uh, syncope, which is fainting, apnea, and rash. Okay, so what is HIB? Hemophilus influenza type B. Even though it's influenza, it's actually a bacteria, not a virus. So this is my take on it. I think Lauren agrees is there are a time and a place for emergency medicine. We have said this so many times. You don't use that medicine to build your health, but you use that medicine in times of crisis or emergency. Antibiotics can produce miracles for people with bacterial infections like this that can cause meningitis and um, bacterial Epiglot issues. Epiglottitis, yeah. Epiglottitis, that's it. That's the one. So- I will say as a former pediatric ICU nurse and pediatric ER nurse, this is the one that would make me more, you know, just more cautious. And I, but I, but we're going to explain the reasoning for why you, I won't have as much fear as I thought I would if yeah. I have another child, because I have seen epiglottitis. I have seen bacterial meningitis in a baby and they are terrifying. Uh, it is, it is terrifying. So there is reason for it. And there is proof that the Hib vaccine did actually like stop the instances of epiglottitis and uh, bacterial meningitis. There is still a little bit of bacterial meningitis. Like it still does happen, but it's not nearly as much as it was. It's usually viral now. Yes. The viral meningitis is way right. more common. Which is not usually deadly. Um, and the incidence of Hib now is very low in 2015 there were three cases of hib in the united states three cases out of 330 million three yeah. cases so it's it's really i would say the argument maybe for today like what is the risk today versus yes. risk versus benefit um you know we look at the what hib is like what does it look like in the child um it looks like flu fever and chills cough muscle aches headache can have some nausea and vomiting and then you can also have the sore throat if that throat is severe or if there is chest pain or if there is a lot of lung involvement if there is brain um, neurological changes you go to the er right away um mm -hmm. because that is something that i like like dr charlie was saying earlier we need to act quick on yep. um but the likelihood of this happening is just super low yeah. And so that's exactly my take on it. This is an instance that if our child or children ever had bacterial meningitis, that is in my eyes, that is not a vaccine deficiency. Okay. That means that we have to go to the ER and get antibiotics because bacteria most times respond to antibiotics. And I just, it's so rare that I don't see that the reward outweighs the risks. 
right? There's a lot of aluminum in this vaccine. So later in life, that can turn into Alzheimer's or any type of methylation defect. There is a huge correlation, which Lauren was telling me before this too, to type one diabetes, which is a huge, the, the, the amount of increase in type one diabetes is sickening. Yeah. It's, it's, the graphs are crazy. If you look at the increased incidence and it's since the eighties, this was introduced in 1987. I will post the study in the show notes that you can see it. It is something to consider as a risk factor, as a risk versus benefit for sure. The other, what are the other side effects to the HIV vaccine that we have seen? There was early onset, there's febrile seizures, which people ask me at least five times a week on Instagram. What do you do for febrile seizures? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, hypotonic. We went through that. That's right. Yeah. We went through the, the, at the beginning with the GBS Guillain-Barre syndrome, the uh, urticaria hives. Um, I just, it's a bacteria. I think that modern medicine has done a, a pretty decent job at going after fatal bacterial infections. And so yeah. I would not, um, I would not do the vaccine for my children. Obviously you guys can do whatever you wish. I won't do it because I just, again, don't see that the reward outweighs the risks. I, I think that it's so not common three cases out of 330 million. Come on people. It's, I mean, maybe back in the nineties, there was, the argument was different, but we're not raising children in the nineties. Yes, We're in a different age now. And so I do think we have to consider that this is just not, and you can, and anytime you are curious, Hey, if I wonder if measles is, is, is around at all right now, or Hib, those are reportables and they have to be reported to the CDC. And you can always look on the CDC website. Not, I mean, we all know we don't care for everything that they do, but they do show it on their website if there is any cases of it that are that are that are going around. And so you can check to see, okay, I'm gonna be in California, I'm gonna be in Montana, whatever. And you can look to see if there are any if it's if it's spreading. I do want to mention just some of the things that you can do. This is from the book called The Unvaccinated Child. Um, I will link it in show notes. It is very good. It's written by two naturopaths. And, um, so you can do the same things that we talk about, um, with other like respiratory viruses or any respiratory illnesses, um, you know, bone broth and ginger tea and probiotics and wet sock method. Um, you can do skin brushing for lymphatic massage, uh, do a, the shower, turn the shower on, close the door, um, sit in the bathroom with the child that can be very helpful for inhaling that steam, ginger tea, elderberry, astragalus. Echinacea. There are several uh, combo immune tinctures that I will I will link that I use in my home as well. Um, vitamin A flush. That is something that during you know for acute illness like that that can be done as well. I can link instructions on that as well. Um, they also have in here um, wormwood. Mm. I don't know about that, but I I would say either way. There are, there are several things you can do. There are several homeopathics that are mentioned in the treatment of HIB. And so the, the goal here is if you have a sick child, you have the things at home ready to go so that you can start with some of these things. It's not, a, it's all about susceptibility. Yes. I mean, so like if you are harmonizing the, the, the immune system and really working, then you, we, you really can prevent it from 
getting more severe, even if they have Hib, which there are cases. I mean, there are children who are carriers. There are, I mean, there are things that will happen that that'll never be tested because it never got severe enough to get tested. And so that was what I would say. Maybe they had all those things at home ready to go. And I know it's hard to amass the collection, but start with a few things um, just to have it home ready to go. I echo that. You explained everything very well. Let's move on, shall we? Yeah. Now this one's going to be a good one. (laughs) We haven't actually really talked about the COVID vaccine. I know. And so many people are obsessed with these days. It's like, it's almost becoming like a religion to people. And I just want to say, like, if you had to get it for whatever job, whatever, anything, you know, I I am so sorry that you were lied to and that you were, or that you were made to do this. That is a crime and that is wrong. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm sorry that you're dealing with it. If you are having any residual issues, we are going to talk about some of the things that you would, we would do to stabilize the body. Um, but first let's just go and get into some of the stuff that's, that people are dealing with now. So you want to start with statistics or should I start with how the vaccine actually works? Let's start with statistics. Let's start. I want, let's just, uh, should I start with the Senator Ron Johnson? Yeah, Ron Johnson. Let's hear about, tell us, tell the people about what Ron Johnson was talking about. He, this was five days ago. Um, on the Bayer's website, they have. And remember people, Bayer's is the uh, reporting for vaccine adverse reactions. So it's voluntary, right? People have to report this. But it's not like, you're not going to be able to, not just anybody. I mean, you can, but it's it's hard to do. Correct. So Correct. it's not like you're going to get past the the people who are just going to do a fake report. Yeah. Uh, that's really not the easiest thing to, to do a fake report on. So it's not like, a, it's not just that simple. Okay. Right. So they track the deaths per year of like medications and vaccines. They, they compile this chart of, and I will, I will link it in the show notes. Deaths per year of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, flu vaccines, dexamethasone, Tylenol, remdesivir, and COVID vaccines. Um, ivermectin had 15 deaths per year. Hydroxychloroquine, 69. Flu vaccine, 77. Dexamethasone, 618. Tylenol, which we're not surprised by, 1,024. Remdesivir, 921. COVID vaccine in 13 months, 20,175 deaths per year. 20 plus thousand. And in, in, in one year, I'm sorry, in 13 months, there were 22,193, but get this 30% of that number were deaths that were on day zero, one or two after the COVID vaccine, man. If that is not causal, like a causality, that is a crime. Now, that is an absolute crime. Technically, you can't say it's like actual, like legitimate, because it is the VAERS and they need to do like le- like legit investigation into it. Yep. But like, they're not going to. No, they won't. They won't. It's too much of a money maker. Yes, it's it's so it is it is this is this is crazy that this yeah. is not on the news. This was. Five days ago. And then we find out today that the FDA and the CDC just put, just authorized the EUA, the emergency use authorization for hmm. the COVID-19 booster for six months to four-year-olds. 
are we still living in this nightmare? Like, is COVID still a thing? Like, come on, it, people. Like, really? I don't, I don't really get it. Like this one, I don't, I don't really get because I'm yeah. just like, like, I don't get it. It, it yeah. for six I months mean, for just, a baby. Yeah, there's no. I mean, I don't get most of it to be honest. I know, like some people, some things I can be like, yeah, I can see where someone can get like duped into thinking this, but like. How how do you like how at this point six month old getting a booster? Mm-hmm. Are we like well, it would be so the first one you're eligible to get the first one at six months booster, uh, right? And then or I think the, it's a four. The- I think it's a four dose series. Jeez. From what I saw, now I I, I mind you, I haven't looked at the full schedule or what they've approved because it's on the cdc schedule now too for children this the covid vaccine is we're we start off by talking about vitamin k and hib and we're like yeah they're you know they can be really toxic and covid vaccine just comes in for the little ones like all right just hold my beer yeah right well i mean so we look at this and we see um dr michelle piero said uh children less than 18 are 51 times more likely to die from mrna vaccine than from covid 51 times more likely 51 times i'm not a betting man i think those are pretty decent odds though steve kirsch said nearly 10 times as many college kids died from the covid19 vaccine versus the virus who said that steve kirsch steve kirsch i thought you said steve kerr like the uh golden state coach um what else oh in japan i'm like i wouldn't be shocked with that woke nba saying something like that i know the highest number of excess deaths since World War II in Japan. Oh. Highest number, 38 times higher than deaths for, versus the flu vaccine. In 2020, the number of deaths increased by 210,000. 210. And you just told me also that the UK... I'm sorry, versus 2020. I'm sorry, versus 2020. Okay. So All like right. it's... Sorry. Um, and versus 2021, the number of deaths increased by more than 140,000. 140,000. Um, and all for a vaccine that never had a phase three clinical trial. That's right. That's right, folks. What did they do in the UK? They stopped it with pregnancy and uh, yeah. breastfeeding. Well, and so that was going to be the next thing. Even Newsweek and other um, major publications admitted that the vac- the COVID vaccine causes menstrual irregularity irregularities yeah. um and so we know there's an effect on hormones at mm-hmm. in so, at some level there were three large studies that showed it they tracked thousands of women on menstrual cycle tracking apps and they their the covid-19 vaccine did change their menstrual cycle it it was proven and um i'm going to talk a little bit about it uh when i talk about the mechanism of this stuff yeah. For many people who are in my membership, I've talked about this a little bit in my vaccine video. I'm actually going to mention a little bit next Tuesday in my fertility and menstrual cycle uh, video as well, but I'm going to give a little preview here tonight. Yeah. I mean, it is something that it definitely, I saw this a lot when I was seeing patients of this affecting a woman not having a period for six months after the vaccine. Um, And that's scary as a woman to not have a period you need it it to function you have to have it yes and i just want to make sure we all understand this was all started under an emergency use authorization 
You yep. cannot get an emergency use authorization in the United States if there is a known treatment. What is the known treatment for COVID that they refuse to label as that? There are treatments for COVID. There are, there are several treatments for COVID. You could do conventional treatments that are like things like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine yep. that was evidence-based. Or yeah, I saw do... ivermectin turn people around in 12 hours, mm-hmm. like completely around where they're like, they were shocked themselves. Like, whoa, this is trippy. Yeah. And then there are, of course, you know, herbals and natural things that you can do for active COVID as well, which we yeah. can, I don't think, is anyone even having symptoms with COVID anymore? I don't even know. I thought it was gone. So I, I, I don't know if we need to go through what time. I would do for active COVID but either way, you can see that there are issues with the COVID vaccine. The fi- Pfizer lists myocarditis risk as one per a thousand um, on their insert, but they still say it, they still label it as a rare side effect. Yeah. The FDA updated the Johnson & Johnson fact sheet, uh, COVID vaccine fact sheet to include myocarditis. There you so go. We, we see that there are, there are issues with it. It's from menstrual cycle irregularity to um, heart issues. We've yep. seen a lot have nervous system and neurological symptoms afterwards. We've yep. seen some clots, some just like overwhelming fatigue and, and decomposition. So I think I've been messaged multiple times from uh, healthcare workers that work in uh, long-term care facilities. Mm-hmm. where their older residents just went downhill. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's not, this is all anecdotal. Like uh, there's not, that's not a study, uh, but is there going to be a study? And that's the sad part. Yeah. So tell us about the mechanism here. So the mechanism, there's two different ones. There's Moderna and Pfizer, and then there's the J and J. So I'm going to start with the Moderna and Pfizer. They created a nanolipoprotein, essentially, which is just like a fatty enveloped carrier uh, for mRNA. Now, just so you guys know, mRNA is nothing new. They've been trying to get this push through since the 80s. And specifically, they've been trying to use mRNA vaccines and things like that for cancer. The issue is they can never prove it was safe until 2020 comes around and they have an emergency use act, right? So they push it through. So Moderna has been trying this since the eighties for a long, long time. They just literally could not keep animals alive in studies and they couldn't prove it was safe. So they finally push it through and here's what it does. It, it basically gets into your cell. It breaks open the cell wall. So it gets into your cell and in there, it, it secretes its MRNA, which your cell uses to create RNA, ribonucleic acid, the building block to DNA. That RNA then goes outside the cell and attaches to the outside of your cell, a spike protein. So their idea is that now that you have a spike protein on the cell, if the virus is in your system, it'll recognize that as one of their own and not attached to your cell. It's like blocking a receptor. The J&J uses not RNA, but chimpanzee adenovirus DNA. So they've taken chimpanzee adenoviruses, so from a monkey, they call it recombinant DNA, which is they've basically spliced it in a laboratory setting. So made their own genetic sequence. So they're literally creating their own genetic sequences. 
And now this goes through your cell wall into the nucleus of your cell. The nucleus is like the brain of the cell. It's where all the DNA is made. It's, it's what controls the cell. And that DNA gets into the nucleus and then creates the RNA, which then does the exact same thing as the other vaccines. It goes outside the cell and it creates that spike protein to attach to the cell. So it's, they're trying to accomplish the same thing, but two slightly different mechanisms by a couple steps. Here's the issue with that. These spike proteins and the, um, the DNA and the mRNA from the vaccines are not cell specific. So they go anywhere they want in the body. And here's where they'll go. The places that generate the most energy, what places generate the most energy, the heart, the ovaries, and the brain. So when you see all these athletes dying suddenly, do you think a professional athlete's heart creates more energy than the average human heart? You better believe it. They are high intense athletes. So this spike protein goes to wherever the most energy is created in an athlete. That's their heart. In females, that's their ovaries. And now you're starting to see some menstrual cycle issues or fertility issues. So this is a pretty big deal. Now, <clears throat> that's the mechanism of why the ovaries are being attacked and your cycle's changing and why people are dropping dead suddenly because it's going onto the heart. Now, what's the issue with this? The issue is that there's really two things that could happen. One is the body recognizes that you just turned your cells that were, uh, that caught the vaccine injection, right? Cause it's not specific. We don't know where they're going. We just know they go where the most energy is usually it just turned your cell into a toxic cell. So remember the body doesn't make mistakes, but humans do. I don't think that's a good idea because now the body's going to create an autoimmune reaction because it's going to start attacking itself. And if it doesn't, then what else can happen? Well, those cells can keep multiplying. Well, what do we just talk about multiplying is can turn into cancer. Now, I'm not saying it's going to for sure turn into cancer in you. It just gives it a much bigger possibility. Well, and we are seeing increasing cancer rates. For sure. And, and, and just like Bernice Eddy said, when, when she said, don't come out with the polio vaccine, she said, you can, we're going to have an absolute skyrocket in cancer cases. And years later, cancer is number two cause of death in the world. And so that's the mechanism of COVID vaccine. Now, clinically, what I have found is dandelion does a great job with the spike protein. And there's other ones that you can read on the internet and stuff like that. I just find dandelion works great. That is glypho X. And then I throw at it all of my heart stuff. So my heart supplements are cat's claw supreme, stragglist supreme, Dan Shen supreme, which Dan Shen helps nitric oxide. So that's going to help with blood flow. Um, and then Regenerzyme Heart and or Inspire Cell, they're very close to each other. So you could take both or you can look at it and choose one. I would probably go more Regenerzyme Heart on this one because it actually has heart tissue in there and that can help revitalize your heart, regenerate your heart like eating organ. Um, but that is the COVID vaccines in a nutshell, how they work from an immunology standpoint. And those are the herbs and supplements that I will test. Yeah, I also like to add in some phosphatidylcholine um, yep. to stabilize cell membrane. I use Body Bio PC. I that is like that and dandelion. Um, yeah. That would be. I wouldn't necessarily go after a bunch of and then uh, yeah, that and dandelion. I wouldn't necessarily go after a bunch of stuff otherwise, like a bunch of treatments or protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are other things that you can do. Um, like if 
you can't even do, there's are some that will do ivermectin for yeah. the spike protein. There yeah. are some that will do other supports, um, like LDN, um, and things like that. Uh, pine needles. That is another yeah, pine needle tea was really big for a while yeah. for it. Yeah, it still is. It, it does. It does show that it, it, it does inhibit the spike protein. Yeah. Um, glutathione would be helpful as well, of course. Um, so there are, you know, there are other things that you can do. I think keeping it simple and knowing that you want to stabilize cell membrane and you want to get that stuff out, um, and, and then not stress because obviously your body is under a lot of stress at this moment. And if you are stressing about it and constantly worried, that's going to increase your likelihood of thing of something happening. Yep. And so, and we, and, and, and a lot of, I mean, even with cancer, you can look for emotional roots of that. Um, and so there's always a period of stress at some point or trauma. And so we don't want that to be like this, you know, snowball that keeps getting bigger. Stop the cycle. Say, I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to control the controllables right now. I can control whether I get another one. I can control what I put in my body now. And if I go outside and get some morning sunlight, get adequate sleep, eat really good as far as like whole foods that are not a bunch of processed foods, things like that. Those are the things that you can control. And that is what I would focus on. I agree 100%. So uh, uh, yeah. yeah, that's pretty much all of it, right? Systemic enzymes. Did you miss, did you mention systemic enzymes? I, I don't use them too often personally. No, okay. I don't. I know a lot of people do. So in for clot. You use Dan Shen. I like Dan Shen or Hemoguard. I usually okay. uh, go towards Dan Shen because it's red sage. So it does help scar tissue. It helps that nitric oxide. The only reason why I don't use proteolytic enzymes a lot is because um, I heard the analogy from the people who own Supreme. Okay. When I was taking their seminars was with proteolytic enzymes, if you are not taking an antimicrobial, it can break biofilms really well. And so it's kind of, it can be like letting the prisoners out of the jail cell with no one to control it. And now it goes rampant in the system. Mm. And so that's why I caution it. Now, if I'm muscle testing and, and specifically testing it, test well, that's a different story. But just to throw it at people, I, I caution it. Like even um, even yesterday, the last visit we had for Myla's tongue tie revision, she had a little scar tissue and they wanted to give her serapeptidase. And I decided, well, I tested it, didn't test well, but we decided to just do that ACG glutathione spray because glutathione helps with scar tissue. I'd rather go that route than the proteolytics. Okay. Well, yeah. But some people get great results with that. I'm not saying that. Like some people are like, man, it really changed everything for me. Totally get that. I just personally don't just throw it out there lightly. Yep. Yep. I think we did a pretty good job of presenting the evidence that yeah. there is a lot of evidence in each of these things. There is a lot of pros and cons, um, with the first two, of course, with the COVID one, that's, you know, <laughs> that's pretty much all cons, <laughs> but we love you. If you got it, look, there's hope there's stuff you can do. We just gave you some herbs. If you want more information, obviously I did the whole, uh, vaccine, um, membership video that talks more about that. But, uh, again, we feel awful that people were forced to take this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wish you guys could sue, uh, and you know, get millions back for it because yeah. it's, it's an absolute, uh, infringement on our rights and, uh, we're sorry, man, it's tough. 
Yeah. And, and the other two, it's, it's, it's an individualized risk and, and it's a risk versus benefit deciding what you feel comfortable with and what you don't. I personally feel like you just have to look at the body as no, as knowing what it can do it. The body can heal itself. The body is meant to thrive and trusting the body and trusting yourself to make the right decision for your family. And so that is one of those things that I think we really have to harness is that, that, uh, that gut instinct and that ability to make the best decision for your, for your children. I think a lot of parents have, have lost that. Uh, I think I did initially, you know, for years I questioned even I, I was a, I was a healthcare provider when I became a mom and I mm -hmm. still had second guesses all the time still do, but nowhere near where I did. And it's because you really have to say, I, I know what's best for my children and I can make the best decision for them. And so know that, trust that and be confident in who you are, that you were chosen to be your child's parent. Bingo. I would say let's end off with that, but Lauren has to read her favorite thing to read at the oh, end yes. of episodes. Of course, this is not meant to be medical advice. This is meant to be educational. Please speak with your healthcare provider before changing anything. That is right. We love you all and we will see y'all in the next one.